I have the privilege of praying for Carrie this morning. So if we would bow our heads and uh, come before the throne of grace. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for the freedom we have to come and study your word to learn more about you so that we can make you known to the world. And Lord, we ask right now your blessing on Carrie. Thank you that she's worked so hard to prepare for us today. Lord, give her clarity of thought, clean articulation, so that the words that you would have us hear will come through loud and clear, that they will penetrate our hearts, Lord, so when we leave this place, we know you better and uh, become shining lights, testimony of you, your faithfulness in our lives, and the great love you have for us, despite our sin nature. And Lord, now I ask that you bless the ladies that are here, the families they represent, Lord, and Lord, help us uh, to be focused on what you would have us here today. And again, we give you praise, Lord. May all we say and do today bring you honor and glory. Amen. Amen. Okay, good morning. How did we feel about this chapter? It's a good one, right? <laughs> um, as I was studying it, I was reminded of Jack Miller's quote here. So it says, and if you don't know, Jack Miller um, founded New Life, Doctor, and he said, cheer up, you're a worse sinner than you ever dare imagine, and you're more loved than you ever dare hope. So today, we're going to sit in the underlined blue part. <laughs> we're going to talk all about sin, um, and I don't have a lot of stories to share today. It's just going to be walking through the passage a lot, so I'm sorry. Um, but it is a dark, heavy passage, so we're just going to sit in it. But then Kim King gets the nice part next week of going through, and you're more loved than you ever dare hoped. So, so that's where we are today. So in my Bible, in chapter 3, a note to the side mentions, Romans begins with one of the darkest descriptions in the Bible. Another commentary said about this chapter, it makes for uncomfortable reading. Tim Keller even said in a sermon on this chapter that when he was a new believer and first started reading the Bible, this chapter gave him fits. When I read my talk to my husband the other night, he said, babe, I would really have to be caffeinated and work out that day to be able to take all this in. No offense to you, babe, it's the passage. <laughs> Yay, this is chapter three. What did I learn from this chapter? that I need to actually read the chapter carefully before saying, yes, I'll do that one. <laughs> this is a tough chapter. It's a dark chapter. Paul is telling us what is wrong with the human race, and it's this tiny little word, sin, but it poses such a big problem. This chapter is all about sin and the fact that we are all sinners. It's going to be uncomfortable. But my hope is that by the end, that by understanding the darkness, the beauty of Christ will shine ever more brightly to us. A few things to point out and to review. Number one, if you haven't read chapters one through three all together, I highly encourage that. Paul is walking us through a series of arguments in these chapters, and it helps us to understand to read them all together. 
Number two, chapters one and three, or one through three, are leading us through the reasoning of why we need the good news of the gospel. These chapters are expanding on what is wrong with mankind and that we are all doomed to spiritual death unless a cure can be found. Number three, in chapter one, Paul is calling out all of the wrongs of the Gentiles, leaving the Jews thinking, I am not like these people. Number four, but chapter two goes on to explain that Jews and Gentiles alike will be judged in the same way. Paul showed us that the ground on which we stand, Jews and Gentiles, religious and unreligious, rule-keeping and rule-breaking, that ground is level. We all face judgment, and we all deserve wrath. This finally brings us to chapter 3. If you remember, Jan taught to us on the very first um, opening and the introduction talk that there are 85 questions throughout the book of Romans. In chapter 3, in the first 20 verses, there are 11 questions alone. In these verses, Paul is anticipating and answering questions that he knows chapter 2 may have provoked among those of Jewish background in the Roman church. Paul was a great evangelist, and in these verses, he is placing himself in their shoes, respecting them enough to think about how they might respond to his teachings and how he can answer questions they might have. This teaching takes the form of a diatribe where a teacher sets up a dialogue with his critics or students, first posing and then answering their questions. It is very probable that Paul is reconstructing actual arguments that he has heard from Jews during his evangelism. It could also be that Paul is remembering attitudes that he himself had as Paul the Pharisee. As commentator Don Stott says, you can imagine that Paul the Pharisee and Paul the Christian are in debate with each other right now. So let's walk through the questions and answers in the first eight verses. And just a side note, I'm reading some of these verses from the New Living Translation because it was just easier for me to understand. Question one in verses one and two. Then what is the advantage of being a Jew? Is there any value in the ceremony of circumcision? Remember, we just ended chapter two, and in verses 28 and 29, it says, For you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by the Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. Circumcision, if you remember, was an outward physical sign of the eternal covenant between God and the Jewish people. Paul is radically redefining the words Jew and circumcision. Paul is saying this outward sign and being an ethnic Jew does not matter. These things do not protect Jews from judgment. So at this point, the Jews have to be thinking, what the heck, Paul? We thought we were the chosen people, but it sounds like this means nothing. But Paul answers, yes, there are great benefits. First of all, the Jews were entrusted with the whole revelation of God. Paul is saying there is value in being an ethnic Jew, but this value is a different kind of value than what they are thinking. It's a value in responsibility, not security. Ethnic Jews have no value in protection from God's judgment. We just established that in chapter 2. But as Paul will later state in chapter 9, verse 4, 
The Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. The whole Old Testament scripture was committed to Israel's care. This was a privileged responsibility given to no other nation. So yes, the Jews did have an advantage in having and knowing the word of God. Question two in verses three and four. But what if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Paul answers, of course not. Even if everyone else is a liar, God is true. As the scriptures say about him, you will be proved right in what you say, and you will win your case in court. This imaginary questioner is saying that God gave his word to the ancient Jews, but what if some of them don't believe it? Does their unfaithfulness nullify God's word? And Paul answers that man's unbelief does not ruin God's plan. The bottom line is that God is true and men are liars. Charles Spurgeon says, this is a strange, strong expression, but it is none too strong. If God says one thing and every man in the world says another, God is true and all men are false. God speaks the truth and cannot lie. God cannot change. His word, like himself, is immutable. We are to believe God's truth even if nobody else believes it. The general consensus of opinion is nothing to a Christian. He believes God's word and thinks more of that than of the universal opinion of men, end quote. Sometimes we need to remind ourselves of this. Sometimes our own thoughts or feelings may say, God has abandoned me or forsaken me. But when we look at God's truth in Matthew 28, 20, for example, he says, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is when we must remind ourselves that God is true and that thought or feeling is not. God is true and every man a liar. Question three, verses five and six. But some might say our sinfulness serves a good purpose for it helps people see how righteous God is. Isn't it unfair then for him to punish us? Paul adds, this is merely a human point of view because he feels embarrassed by this reasoning. Only a fallen man would dare to question God's holy justice. The objector is making the point that our unrighteousness makes God's righteousness ever more clear. In other words, we can see how righteous God is by looking at how unrighteous we are. So really, my unrighteousness is doing God a favor. And so if our unrighteousness benefits God, wouldn't it be unfair for him to punish us for something which makes him look so good? Paul answers, on that basis, God would not judge anyone in the world. And we, Paul and religious Jews, all agree God should judge. In other words, if God can overlook the sins of Jews, how can he hold anyone accountable? He would lose the right to be the judge. We are all responsible before God. God is a righteous judge and will judge the world. Question four, verses seven and eight. Well, then, if me sinning makes God look better, that means that I should sin more, shouldn't I? So that his glory is more clearly seen. Paul answers, I've been accused of thinking this, and I certainly don't. And saying you're sinning so that God will love you is an attitude that is absolutely worthy of judgment. Evil never promotes the glory of God. 
In verses 1 through 8, Paul has defended the gospel against misunderstanding and misrepresentation. He's argued its truth and reasonableness. He saw God's character was at stake, and so as Stott states, he reaffirmed God's covenant as having lasting value, his faithfulness to his promises, his justice as judge, and his true glory, which is promoted only by good, never by evil. John Stott goes on to say and concludes this section in his commentary by stating, we too in our day must include apologetics, which is discussing and defending our faith in our evangelism. We need to anticipate people's objections to the gospel, listen carefully to their problems, respond to them with due seriousness and proclaim the gospel in such a way as to affirm God's goodness and further his glory. Such two-way preaching has a powerful apostolic precedent in this passage. We now move to verse 9, where Paul has been leading us since chapter 1. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. To be under sin is the same as to be unrighteous. Unrighteous means standing before God, not in right standing with him or others, because we have wronged him and them. Tim Keller says, to be under sin is a legal term. We are citizens of sin. It is as though we all have a spiritual passport, which shows our legal citizenship. It is either stamped under sin or under grace. And Paul's statement here is that all are under sin, Jews and Gentiles, religious and unreligious, the moral and immoral, we are all alike under sin. This does not mean that everyone sins to the same degree. Rather, it means that our legal condition is the same. As Keller explains, we are all lost and there are no degrees of lostness. Keller goes on to use this example in his commentary, and I couldn't think of a better one, so I'm just going to steal his. Imagine three people who try to swim from Hawaii to Japan. The first can't swim at all and so drowns immediately. The second is a weak swimmer, makes it 60 feet, and then drowns. The third is an Olympic swimmer and swims strongly for a long time. But after 30 miles, he is struggling. After 40, he is sinking. And after 50 miles, he drowns. Is one more drowned than the others? No, it doesn't matter at all which swam further. None were anywhere near Japan, and each ends up as dead as the others. In the same way, the religious person may trust in morality and the pagan indulge in sensuality, and neither comes close to the righteous heart. They are equally lost, equally condemned to perish. We alike are all under sin. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Paul then goes on to support this statement by stringing together several passages from the Old Testament. So I'm going to read verses 10 through 18. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
This is a grim list of sin's effects on us. Not only do we need to accept that we are all sinners, but we also need to grasp the reality of our sinfulness. Within these verses, Paul lays out seven effects that sin has on us. Number one, our legal standing. Legally, we are all guilty. No one's works or deeds can change that. No matter how hard we work, we are guilty and should be condemned to death. Number two, sin has an effect on our minds. There is no one who understands. Because our hearts are so corrupted by sin, we don't understand God's truth. Our understanding is darkened, our hearts are hard, and heart hardness causes lack of understanding. We are blind to many truths. Without the Spirit of God, we cannot understand. Number three, sin affects our motives. No one seeks God. Keller says to seek God is a desire to know the true God, to find and enjoy him, a desire to worship, appreciate and rejoice in him for who he is. And Paul is saying here that no one really wants to seek God. We may have an intellectual curiosity about God, but that is not a real passion to meet with God. Or someone may have a problem in their lives that they need God to solve, so we seek him to solve our problem. But this is not the same thing as truly seeking to know and be known by him. It is instead seeking what God can give us, but not seeking him. No one really wants to find him. Instead, we run and hide from him in all that we do. We have no room for him in our thoughts, and we do not love him with all our powers. Because of sin, we want to occupy the throne which belongs to God alone. Number four. Sin affects our wills. All have turned away. We may think about Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We want to choose our own paths. We want to be in control. Number five, sin affects our tongues. Their throats are open graves. The things that we say are deceitful, hateful, poisonous. Paul is using the image of a grave with rotting bodies in it. Sinful words are signs of decay. We use our tongues to hurt others, to protect our own interests. Even the fall began with the sin that was a lie, with a tongue that belonged to Satan in the garden. Number six, our relationships. We are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark our ways, and the way of peace we do not know. Sin, unfortunately, affects our relationships. We seek to ruin others. We are after each other's blood. We do not know peace ourselves and therefore can't live in peace with others. We beat a path of destruction ahead of ourselves. Number seven, our relationship to God. There is no fear of God before our eyes. If you don't fear God, you don't restrict your sin. Every sin and rebellion against God happens because there is no fear of him. Whew, how are we doing? It's brutal, right? This is a depressing list. Paul is saying in this list that we are sick from head to foot, from our minds to our tongues down to our feet. The fall has corrupted every part of us. There is no one righteous, no, not one. 
Paul has spelled out to us the immensity of our problem before God. And it's our instinct to say, okay, God, just tell me what to do to fix this. I can do it. I'll do better next time. I've got this. I can fix myself. But Paul wants us to understand that we are completely unable to save ourselves. We are filled with sin and rebellion against God. This brings us to the last two verses of this section, verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul wrote this to everyone, to all who are under the law. God sent the law into the world for man to see what the standard is to get into heaven. It wasn't for redemption, it was for condemnation. The law reminds us that we can't do this. We can't follow the law. No one will be successful in becoming righteous before God. The standard for heaven is perfection, and we don't meet it. Sin is imperfection, the standard is perfection. This is a problem. Our fallenness is so great that God had to go to the utmost extreme to solve this problem. If you want to solve a small problem, you would use a small solution. But what we have is a huge problem, a gigantic problem. We have to match the solution to the problem. The second half of chapter three will go into more detail on how to solve this problem that we all have. But after such a dark and heavy chapter, I do want to end on the hope that is coming, and that is Jesus. Jesus came down to earth to live and die as a humble man and endured the most excruciating death on the cross to bear our sin and shame. He took the wrath of God that you and I deserve. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, and that, sisters, is our hope. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you that we don't have to stay in this darkness. That even though we are sinners and no one does good and not one of us understands or seeks you, you don't see us that way. Thank you, Lord, for providing a solution to our problem of sin in Jesus. Help us to see and understand our sin more clearly so that the beauty of what Christ did for us on the cross shines ever more brightly to us. And it's in his precious name I pray. Amen.